Section 31 of Volume 1F of History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jim Dennison. History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688 by David Hume. Volume 1F, Section 31, Chapter 69, Part 1. Chapter 69, Charles II. When the Cabal entered into the mysterious alliance with France, they took care to remove the Duke of Ormond from the Committee of Foreign Affairs, and nothing tended further to increase the national jealousy entertained against the new measures than to see a man of so much loyalty, as well as probity and honor, excluded from public councils. They had even so great interest with the king as to get Ormond recalled from the government of Ireland, and Lord Robarts, afterwards Earl of Radnor, succeeded him in that important employment. Lord Berkeley succeeded Robarts, and the Earl of Essex Berkeley. At last, in the year 1677, Charles cast his eye again upon Ormond, whom he had so long neglected, and sent him over lieutenant to Ireland. I have done everything, said the king, to disoblige that man, but it is not in my power to make him my enemy. Ormond, during his disgrace, had never joined the malcontents, nor encouraged those clamors which, with too much reason, but often for bad purposes, were raised against the king's measures. He even thought it his duty regularly, though with dignity, to pay his court at Whitehall, and to prove that his attachments were founded on gratitude, inclination, and principle, not on any temporary advantages. All the expressions which dropped from him, while neglected by the court, showed more of good humor than any prevalence of spleen and indignation. I can do you no service, said he to his friends. I have only the power left by my applications to do you some hurt. When Colonel Carey Dillon solicited him to second his pretensions for an office, and urged that he had no friends but God and his grace, Alas, poor Carey, replied the Duke, I pity thee. Thou couldst not have two friends that possess less interest at court. I am thrown by, said he, on another occasion, like an old rusty clock, yet even that neglected machine, twice in twenty-four hours, points right. On such occasions, when Ormond, from decency, paid his attention at court, the king, equally ashamed to show him civility and to neglect him, was abashed and confounded. Sir, said the profligate Buckingham, I wish to know whether it be the Duke of Ormond that is out of favor with your majesty, or your majesty with the Duke of Ormond, for of the two you seem the most out of countenance. When Charles found it his interest to show favor to the old royalist and to the Church of England, Ormond, who was much revered by that whole party, could not fail of recovering together with the government of Ireland his former credit and authority. His administration, when Lord Lieutenant, corresponded to the general tenor of his life, and tended equally to promote the interest of prince and people, of Protestant and Catholic. Ever firmly attached to the established religion, 
he was able, even during those jealous times, to escape suspicion, though he gratified not vulgar prejudices by any persecution of the Popish party. He increased the revenue of Ireland to three hundred thousand pounds a year. He maintained a regular army of ten thousand men. He supported a well-disciplined militia of twenty thousand. And though the act of settlement had so far been infringed, that Catholics were permitted to live in corporate towns, they were guarded with so careful an eye that the most timorous Protestant never apprehended any danger from them. The chief object of Essex's ambition was to return to the station of Lord Lieutenant, where he had behaved with honor and integrity. Shaftesbury and Buckingham bore an extreme hatred to Ormond, both from personal and party considerations. The great aim of the anti-courtiers was to throw reflections on every part of the king's government. It could be no surprise, therefore, to the Lord Lieutenant to learn that his administration was attacked in Parliament, particularly by Shaftesbury. But he had the satisfaction, at the same time, to hear of the keen, though polite, defense made by his son, the generous Ossery. After justifying several particulars of Ormond's administration against that intriguing patriot, Ossery proceeded in the following words. Having spoken of what the Lord Lieutenant has done, I presume with the same truth to tell your lordships what he has not done. He has never advised the breaking of the Triple League. He never advised the shutting up of the Exchequer. He never advised the declaration for a toleration. He never advised the falling out with the Dutch and the joining with France. He was not the author of that most excellent position, de landa est Carthago, that Holland, a Protestant country, should, contrary to the true interest of England, be totally destroyed. I beg that your lordships will be so just as to judge of my father and all men according to their actions and their counsels. These few sentences pronounced by a plain, gallant soldier noted for probity had a surprising effect upon the audience and confounded all the rhetoric of his eloquent and factious adversary. The Prince of Orange, who esteemed the former character as much as he despised the latter, could not forbear congratulating by letter the Earl of Ossory on this new species of victory which he had obtained. Ossory, though he ever kept at a distance from faction, was the most popular man in the kingdom, though he never made any compliance with the corrupt views of the court, was beloved and respected by the king. A universal grief appeared on his death, which happened about this time, and which the populace, as is usual wherever they are much affected, foolishly ascribed to poison. Ormond bore the loss with patience and dignity, though he ever retained a pleasing, however melancholy, sense of the signal merit of Ossory. I would not exchange my dead son, said he, for any living son in Christendom. These particularities may appear a digression, but it is with pleasure, I own, that I relax myself for a moment in the contemplation of these humane and virtuous characters, amidst that scene of fury and faction, fraud and violence, in which at present our narration has unfortunately engaged us. 
Besides the general interest of the country party to decry the conduct of all the king's ministers, the prudent and peaceable administration of Ormond was in a particular manner displeasing to them. In England, where the Catholics were scarcely one to a hundred, means had been found to excite a universal panic, on account of insurrections and even massacres projected by that sect. And it could not but seem strange that in Ireland, where they exceeded the Protestants six to one, there should no symptoms appear of any combination or conspiracy. Such an incident, when duly considered, might even in England shake the credit of the plot, and diminish the authority of those leaders who had so long, with such industry, inculcated the belief of it on the nation. Rewards, therefore, were published in Ireland to any that would bring intelligence or become witnesses, and some profligates were sent over to that kingdom with a commission to seek out evidence against the Catholics. Under pretense of searching for arms or papers, they broke into houses and plundered them. They threw innocent men into prison and took bribes for their release and after all their diligence it was with difficulty that that country commonly fertile enough in witnesses could furnish them with any fit for their purpose at last one fitzgerald appeared followed by ivy sanson dennis bourke two mcnamaras and some others these men were immediately sent over to england and though they possessed neither characters sufficient to gain belief even for truth nor sense to invent a credible falsehood, they were caressed, rewarded, supported, and recommended by the Earl of Shaftesbury. Oliver Plunkett, the titular primate of Ireland, a man of peaceable dispositions, was condemned and executed upon such testimony, and the Oxford Parliament entered so far into the matter as to vote that they were entirely satisfied in the reality of the horrid and damnable Irish plot. But such decisions, though at first regarded as infallible, had now lost much of their authority, and the public still remained somewhat indifferent and incredulous. After the dissolution of the Parliament and the subsequent victory of the Royalists, Shaftesbury's evidences, with Turberville, Smith, and others, addressed themselves to the ministers, and gave information of high treason against their former patron. It is sufficiently scandalous that intelligence conveyed by such men should have been attended to, but there is some reason to think that the court agents, nay, the ministers, nay, the king himself, went further, and were active in endeavouring, though in vain, to find more reputable persons to support the blasted credit of the Irish witnesses. Shaftesbury was committed to prison and his indictment was presented to the grand jury. The new sheriffs of London, Shute and Pilkington, were engaged as deeply as their predecessors in the country party, and they took care to name a jury devoted to the same cause, a precaution quite necessary when it was scarcely possible to find men indifferent or attached to neither party. As far as swearing could go, the treason was clearly proved against Shaftesbury, or rather so clearly as to merit no kind of credit or attention. That veteran leader of a party, inured from his early youth to faction and intrigue, 
to cobbles and conspiracies, was represented as opening, without reserve, his treasonable intentions to these obscure banditti, and throwing out such violent and outrageous reproaches upon the king, as none but men of low education, like themselves, could be supposed to employ. The draft of an association, it is true, against Popery and the Duke, was found in Shaftesbury's cabinet, and dangerous inferences might be drawn from many clauses of that paper. But it did not appear that it had been framed by Shaftesbury, or so much as approved by him. And as projects of an association had been proposed in Parliament, it was very natural for this nobleman, or his correspondence, to be thinking of some plan which it might be proper to lay before that assembly. The grand jury, therefore, after weighing all these circumstances, rejected the indictment, and the people who attended the hall testified their joy by the loudest acclamations, which were echoed throughout the whole city. About this time a scheme of oppression was laid in Scotland, after a manner still more flagrant, against a nobleman much less obnoxious than Shaftesbury, and as that country was reduced to a state of almost total subjection, the project had the good fortune to succeed. The Earl of Argyle, from his youth, had distinguished himself by his loyalty and his attachment to the royal family. Though his father was head of the Covenanters, he himself refused to concur in any of their measures, and when a commission of colonel was given him by the Convention of States, he forbore to act upon it till it should be ratified by the king. By his respectful behavior, as well as by his services, he made himself acceptable to Charles when that prince was in Scotland, and even after the Battle of Worcester, all the misfortunes which attended the royal cause could not engage him to desert it. Under Middleton he obstinately persevered to harass and infest the victorious English, and it was not till he received orders from that general that he would submit to accept of a capitulation. Such jealousy of his loyal attachments was entertained by the commonwealth and protector, that a pretense was soon after fallen upon to commit him to prison, and his confinement was rigorously continued till the restoration. The king, sensible of his services, had remitted to him his father's forfeiture, and created him Earl of Argyle, and when a most unjust sentence was passed upon him by the Scottish Parliament, Charles had anew remitted it. In the subsequent part of this reign, Argyle behaved himself dutifully, and though he seemed not disposed to go all links with the court, he always appeared, even in his opposition, to be a man of mild dispositions and peaceable deportment. A parliament was summoned at Edinburgh this summer, and the duke was appointed commissioner. Besides granting money to the king and voting the indefeasible right of succession, this Parliament enacted a test which all persons possessed of offices, civil, military, or ecclesiastical, were bound to take. In this test the king's supremacy was asserted, the covenant renounced, passive obedience assented to, and all obligations disclaimed of endeavouring any alteration in civil or ecclesiastical establishments. This was the state of the test, as proposed by the courtiers. 
but the country party proposed also to insert a clause which could not with decency be refused expressing the person's adherence to the protestant religion the whole was of an enormous length considered as an oath and what was worse a confession of faith was there ratified which had been imposed a little after the reformation and which contained many articles altogether forgotten by the parliament and nation among others the doctrine of resistance was inculcated so that the test being voted in a hurry was found on examination to be a medley of contradiction and absurdity several persons the most attached to the crown scrupled to take it the bishops and many of the clergy remonstrated the earl of queensbury refused to swear except he might be allowed to add an explanation and even the privy council thought it necessary to publish for general satisfaction a solution of some difficulties attending the test though the courtiers could not reject the clause of adhering to the protestant religion they proposed as a necessary mark of respect that all princes of the blood should be exempted from taking the oath this exception was zealously opposed by argyle who observed that the sole danger to be dreaded for the protestant religion must proceed from the perversion of the royal family by insisting on such topics he drew on himself the secret indignation of the duke of which be soon felt the fatal consequences when argyle took the test as a privy councillor he subjoined in the duke's presence an explanation which he had beforehand communicated to that prince and which he believed to have been approved by him it was in these words i have considered the test and am very desirous of giving obedience as far as i can i am confident that the parliament never intended to impose contradictory oaths therefore i think no man can explain it but for himself accordingly i take it as far as it is consistent with itself and the protestant religion and i do declare that i mean not to bind myself in my station and in a lawful way from wishing and endeavouring any alteration which i think to the advantage of church or state and not repugnant to the protestant religion and my loyalty and this i understand as a part of my oath the duke as was natural heard these words with great tranquillity no one took the least offence argyle was admitted to sit that day in council and it was impossible to imagine that a capital offence had been committed where occasion seemed not to have been given so much as for a frown or reprimand argyle was very much surprised a few days after to find that a warrant was issued for committing him to prison that he was indicted for high treason leasing-making and perjury and that from these innocent words an accusation was extracted by which he was to forfeit honours life and fortune it is needless to enter into particulars where the iniquity of the whole is so apparent though the sword of justice was displayed even her semblance was not put on and the forms alone of law were preserved in order to sanctify or rather aggravate the oppression of five judges three did not scruple to find the guilt of treason and leasing-making to have been incurred by the prisoner 
a jury of fifteen noblemen gave verdict against him, and the king, being consulted, ordered the sentence to be pronounced, but the execution of it to be suspended till further orders. It was pretended by the duke and his creatures that Argyle's life and fortune were not in any danger, and that the sole reason for pushing the trial to such extremities against him was in order to make him renounce some hereditary jurisdictions which gave his family a dangerous authority in the highlands and obstructed the course of public justice but allowing the end to be justifiable the means were infamous and such as were incompatible not only with a free but a civilized government argyle had therefore no reason to trust any longer to the justice or mercy of such enemies he made his escape from prison and till he should find a ship for holland he concealed himself during some time in london the king heard of his lurking-place but would not allow him to be arrested all the parts however of his sentence as far as the government in scotland had power were rigorously executed his estate confiscated his arms reversed and torn it would seem that the genuine passion for liberty was at this time totally extinguished in scotland there was only preserved a spirit of mutiny and sedition encouraged by a mistaken zeal for religion cameron and cargill two furious preachers went a step beyond all their brethren they publicly excommunicated the king for his tyranny and his breach of the covenant and they renounced all allegiance to him cameron was killed by the troops in an action at ayres moss cargill was taken and hanged many of their followers were tried and convicted their lives were offered them if they would say god save the king but they would only agree to pray for his repentance this obstinacy was much insisted on as an apology for the rigors of the administration but if duly considered it will rather afford reason for a contrary inference such unhappy delusion is an object rather of commiseration than of anger and it is almost impossible that men could have been carried to such a degree of frenzy unless provoked by a long train of violence and oppression as the king was master in england and no longer dreaded the clamors of the country party he permitted the duke to pay him a visit and was soon after prevailed on to allow of his return to england and of his bearing a part in the administration the duke went to scotland in order to bring up his family and settle the government of that country and he chose to take his passage by sea the ship struck on a sandbank and was lost the duke escaped in the barge and it is pretended that while many persons of rank and quality were drowned and amongst the rest hyde his brother-in-law he was very careful to save several of his dogs and priest for these two species of favorites are coupled together by some writers it has likewise been asserted that the barge might safely have held more persons and that some who swam to it were thrust off and even their hands cut in order to disengage them but every action of every eminent person during this period is so liable to be misinterpreted and misrepresented by faction that we ought to be very cautious in passing judgment on too slight evidence 
it is remarkable that the sailors on board the ship though they felt themselves sinking and saw inevitable death before their eyes yet as soon as they observed the duke to be in safety gave a loud shout in testimony of their joy and satisfaction end of section thirty one chapter sixty nine part one recording by jim dennison j i m d e n i s o n voice dot com